Let's pray together. Ask God to bless our time in his word. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you again uh, for your love and your faithfulness to us. Um, we ask for your help. We understand, God, that we um, are clueless and we are powerless without your intervention, without the display of your love and care for us. So we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your guidance as we dive into your holy scriptures, that we would uh, learn to love one another, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, and to deepen our devotion to our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, good to be back with you. Um, I think we can just jump right into it. Uh, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is our text today. And we are in chapter 2 with this dream, this dream that God gave personally to King Nebuchadnezzar, that Daniel, the prophet, is now revealing to him. And as you remember, upon pain of death, right, there was that decree that Nebuchadnezzar sent out that not only did he want his dream interpreted, he wanted his dream actually revealed. The test was, just tell me what I had a dream of, right? I know you guys are trying to fool me. I know you're trying to take advantage of me. I know you're trying to buy time, hoping my wrath will subside, but it's not going to happen this time. And so in comes Daniel as the Lord's spokesman to both give the king the dream and to interpret it and thereby reveal the glory of God in the midst of the Babylonian Empire. Our text is split. As you can see in your bulletin, the text is Daniel 2, verses 34 through 35, and verses 44 through 45. And what we want to do is we want to take some time. You know, I, I, from the outset in preaching the book of Daniel, I let you guys know, but it was not my desire to be overly exhaustive in the book of Daniel to uncover every nook and cranny. I don't want the major themes of Daniel uh, to get lost. But when we come to Daniel chapter 2, we see one of Scripture's most significant themes or motifs, and that is the mountain. Uh, when we see uh, this theme of the mountain in Scripture, we come to a very significant and important theme. And as Daniel describes it, it's not just any old mountain, it's a mountain that represents the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, this passage in Daniel chapter 2 discussing the mountain really gives us a full picture of God's redemptive plan for the cosmos. That's why we want to get into it. That's why we want to discover this in some depth, because herein we see the gospel from beginning to end put on display. We see God's plan to reign through His Son over all of creation and to restore it and to glorify it. And there's plenty of application for us, of course, because He uses people, He uses His saints to declare that message. And so what we have been looking at carefully is the stone that became a mountain. And then, of course, from there, we ask ourselves, well, what is this mountain proclaiming? We say, yeah, go tell it on the mountain, but what is the mountain telling us? And there are several themes we want to take our time uh, walking through so that we understand clearly the message of the mountain. And so we call this, well, for Christmas time, we call it Jingle Bell Rock of Ages, the stone that became a mountain today. It is simply Rock of Ages, the stone that became a mountain. Of course, we're in part two. There will probably be, I can tell you right now, a part three and four. I always come to this with the best and most ambitious of, of intentions to try to get through a certain part of the text. And then usually Sunday morning, conveniently, the realization hits me that there's no way we're going to make it uh, any farther than this, and that's okay. I think it's to our benefit. I think this is an important enough of a theme that we can take our time, because what can be more important to the church than understanding the gospel in its fullness? Not just the message of the gospel itself, but its impact, and the impact that God means it to have on all of creation, and the way that He uses us in that to make an impact, and to bring that restoration of creation. And so, God help us to be like Daniel, to be faithful, to know His Word, to preach words of life and truth 
uh, to the nations. And so let's look at this carefully. Let's read our text first, and then we'll start breaking down our next theme. So beginning at verse 34 and 35, I will, I will read. Please follow along. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. And then to the other two verses. Describing the the statue and what the stone will do to them in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So Daniel has disclosed the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar and he's telling him what it means, what is going to become of these earthly kingdoms represented by the statue, which we have to automatically recognize and acknowledge that this statue is is limited in in its geography, right? none None of these kingdoms completely take over the entire world. They have limitations in power, authority, influence, geography. But this kingdom, which is represented by this stone, this rock that is cut out without hands, is one that not only breaks them all into pieces, but it then becomes a mountain that covers the entire world. So we see there is not going to be any place, at some point in human history, future from Daniel's perspective in time, there is going to be no place on planet earth that is unaffected by this mountain. That is, as we recognize it in its interpretation, there will come a day where there will be no place left on planet earth that will be somehow free from the influence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious kingdom. And to that, the church says, amen. That is what we desire. And that should instantly refresh us. That should instantly free us from this dim view of eschatology, this dim view of the effect of the gospel, as if we're only meant here for a time to save souls and then we die, that we're ultimately not going to have any impact and we keep hammering this home, that we should not as Christians expect the world to get worse and worse and worse. We should not have this this dim, abysmal view of the effect of the gospel, and many of us are born into it, and many of us are raised in that, and I'm, and I'm here to say we need to, we need to not only jettison that view, we need to repent from it. It does the church no good to go on thinking that ultimately the work that God does through his saints, through his church, is going to have no effect, no lasting impact, no total impact, because that is exactly what the mountain presents to us, because the Lord is using his people to see this mountain grow. It's by his power alone. It's by his word and authority alone. But he tasks us to proclaim this kingdom and its growth. And so this vision is magnificent. This vision in some sense is frightening. Could you imagine standing there and seeing this rock that just completely obliterates this statue? But it doesn't stay the same size. It grows. It grows until it is over all the earth. There's no limitations to it, and and we find out too that this mountain cannot be stopped. It it, It may be resisted for a time, but all who resist it will ultimately break. They will be crushed into pieces. And so therein lies the warning, and we'll get to that at a later time in terms of the mountain meaning destruction for God's enemies. Reminds me of a story, if you guys are familiar with the story of uh, Parikutan, which is a volcano in, in Mexico. This volcano is famous for being a, a volcano that was, whose growth was actually observed by people. You know, we look at many volcanoes today and we think, oh, how long has that been there? When did that emerge? Well, this, this particular volcano was first observed in 1943 in the cornfield of local corn farmer, farmer Dionisio Pulido. He first recognized this, this sudden emergence from the ground. And over the course, it seems, of about uh, nine, ten years, 
the, 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 it became a full-grown volcano. So imagine that. You have a flat cornfield, and then before you know it, over time, observably, you had this ginormous, I said ginormous, didn't I? You had this ginormous volcano where your cornfield once was. What a phenomenon. But it took time, it took energy, it took power, right? And that is not unsimilar as to how we see the growth of the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. It starts as something barely discernible. And on Christmas Eve, when we worshiped together on the Lord's Day, we talked about how it was phenomenal in the sense that the kingdom of God was manifest in human flesh by a baby in a manger. That's how it started. And you look upon the sweet baby Jesus and you think, what is going to become of this? How is, how is this helpless little babe in a, in a feeding trough for unclean beasts, how, how, is, how is this? How is this ever going to emerge into anything remotely significant? We don't look at a baby like this, a helpless baby, and think one day this this child is going to be the exalted king of heaven and earth, king of kings, lord of lords, whose power and truth and beauty and magnificence is completely unmatched. And yet here we are. We are living as citizens in his kingdom. The little baby who became a man who grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This man who became a teacher, a rabbi, a prophet. This man who eventually laid his life down for his enemies, for, for sinners who could not help themselves, who could not save themselves. This man who turns out was God in the flesh, the God-man, who rose from the dead victoriously on the third day, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father in all grace and power who rules now the nations with a rod of iron. The mountain is growing. The mountain has come to bear. What started out as a stone is now becoming a mountain. We never want to be tempted to deny that reality. So this is what we are discussing today. And so the mountain makes certain proclamations. And we talked about the first two. Okay, the first one was this, and each of them are, it's, it's kind of hard to put them in order of significance. It's, it, sometimes you want to understand this in one, as, as one theme leads to the other, and even that is a task. But what's the first thing we recognize? That the mountain proclaims to us God's distinction or distinguishing of his own kingdom, right? That God's kingdom is different, different in many ways, right? It is the stone cut out without hands. It is not part of the statue, It is not from the statue. It is not natural. It is supernatural. It is not fleshly, right? It is from the Spirit of God. It is not temporary. It is eternal. And we see that from verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2, that it itself will endure forever. So there's an automatic distinction. We have to think of God's kingdom in a different way that we think of earthly kingdoms. That's simply the first application. We can't think that God's kingdom is any old kingdom, nor can we think of Jesus as some distant king in exile who's just waiting for his turn. No, he's ruling now, and his rule is is growing. Irresistibly, inevitably, and I think clearly, we we can see his kingdom come to bear. We can see his kingdom grow. Thirdly, or secondly, The mountain proclaims God's devotion to his son. And we kind of put a little spin on this because we've talked about God's immense love for us, right? But how do we know the reality of God's love for us? Well, we see it first and foremost in God's love for his son. God loves his son. God the Father loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through Christ that we experience the love of the Father. And of course, that is very significant because in God's love for His Son, God gives gifts to His Son. And one of those things that God gives to His Son is a people. Right? As First Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He's not only talking to the Jewish race in this case. He is talking to the church. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles. He's saying, you are a people for God's own possession. So God gives his son a a, a people, a nation, a priesthood. That, that That is the depth of God's love for his son. Not that he would merely destroy all of his enemies, but so that he could save his enemies and deliver to his son a people. 
talked about that. And so today we come to the third thing, and I tell you, this is all we're going to get through. So this is the third thing that the mountain proclaims, this mountain, that, this stone that becomes a mountain that covers the whole earth. So, the mountain proclaims God's desire to fellowship with man. Now, if you have sat under my preaching for any amount of time, you realize that I harp on this quite a bit. It is actually one of my favorite themes. It's one of my favorite themes in Scripture. God's desire to fellowship or God's desire to dwell with man. And I like the word fellowship because fellowship underscores a very important point is that we fellowship with God in that we enjoy a common life with him. Right? God dwells with us. It's not as if he's just here, inert, inactive, not really doing anything. It's not as if God is just chilling out. No, he is giving us of himself. Right? God fellowship with, fellowships with us. He draws us near so that we may come to, to dwell with Him, to experience life in Him, to delight in Him, to tell others about Him. You see, this is where we experience God's love for us. Because of God's love for His Son and His saving work through His Son, we are now invited in. We are able to be in the presence of God and experience God's love for us. God's love cannot be detached from His desire to dwell with people. Wasn't that, after all, how it was from the beginning of creation? What did God do? He made, he made the world. He made, he made all the cosmos. He made the stars, the trees, the fish, the birds, the creeping beasts. And then out of the dust of the ground, he made man. He made man to be his faithful image bearer, an heir to the world, to cultivate, right? To cultivate, to take dominion, to be a ruler before God of this world. And that is the gift he gave to Adam. But the, great, the greatest gift he gave to Adam and Eve was the gift of himself, the fact that the man and his wife, being a, cre- being a created being, depending upon God for everything, for sustenance, for resources, for wisdom, right? God chose to dwell with them in the Garden of Eden. God made a dwelling place to be with man and to give him all the grace and goodness necessary to rule creation. And as we are familiar with, Adam and Eve disobeyed and were kicked out of paradise. They were alienated, as it were, from the presence of God. And the saddest tale of humanity is that alienation, because that alienation results in death. And it seems that no matter how perfectly clear God makes it that he desires to dwell among men, to dwell with his people, what does man do? Man does the same thing, the exact same thing that Adam did. He runs. He runs and he tries to hide. I saw that I was naked, so I fled. I mean, is that not the sad tale of the human race? There's some, there seems to be something in man that just knows he hides, he hides from God, he hates God, he wants nothing to do with God, and whenever he is confronted with the reality of God, he blames God. He rejects God. He does what he can to keep running from God. And so in that state, man is helpless, because it become, it's, it's part of his nature. It is part of our nature as fallen creatures to run from God until God gives us life in His Son so that it is our inclination to draw near to Him and we see it as a blessing. That was part of our, um, our, call, was it our call to worship this morning. If you turn to uh, Psalm 65, we see that very thing. It's a beautiful picture of corporate worship. It says, There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God, and to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me as for our transgressions you forgive them. So look at right there, and don't we experience this in a a certain kind of fullness in Christ? Because we have been brought near through Christ. So anything, anything that would have kept us from being able to draw near to God has been completely taken care of. Because our iniquities prevailed against us. We had transgressions, and what does God do for us in Christ? He forgives them. He forgives us from our sins, and so now we can draw near in faith. 
But look at this. Look at the, look at the mindset, though. Verse 4, how blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. See, there's a particular delight and inclination to draw near. It's one of those weird things about the Christian. On one hand, we are to fear God. We are to draw near in holy reverence, knowing that God is a consuming fire. But on the other hand, there seems something about God that is irresistible to the one who is born again. An inclination, a supernatural inclination, if you will, to draw near to God. That is sometimes, that's why it seems so silly sometimes, I would say all the time, every time I hear about this, about a, a, a confessing believer, someone who acknowledges the Lord Jesus Christ and yet has no interest in corporate worship, does not desire to be with the people of God, to join together, even if for a, a short time, one day a week, and worship the living God and hear the word of the living God proclaimed. There is something about every believer where we have a desire, or ought to have a desire, a strong desire to draw near to God, which is a complete reversal. If we are still in our unbelief, if we are still a slave to sin, there should be something about the presence of God that terrifies us, absolutely terrifies us, something that just brings this this fear of, of death, as if we would just be vaporized in the presence of God. And for some people, that's exactly what happened. I mean, even think of of Israel, the nation of Israel, God delivers them with a mighty hand. He smites Egypt, kills their firstborn, leads them out into the wilderness, and then his own presence and fire and smoke and all kinds of dread descends upon the mountaintop. And what does Israel say? No, we can't go near the mountain. We will die. Have Moses speak for us. This is, this is too much. But why is God descending upon the mountain? Because he wants to be near his people. We've talked about a lot of that, that, about that a lot with the theme of holiness, right? Keep pressing this home. That part of understanding God's, God as holy is that he desires to draw near to us, not to keep him separate, not to keep himself away from us. That's why he says, be holy as I am holy. Why? Not because he wants to be distant, because he, but because he wants to come and fellowship with us. God desires to dwell with his people. And the very growth of this mountain points to that amazing reality. Right? That as the mountain grows, that as the mountain covers the entire earth, there is no place on planet earth where God's fellowshipping presence is absent. That's what is being identified to us here. We are experiencing that right now. We don't often think of ourselves as standing on the mountain, and yet here we are. We have come to, sneak peek, we have come to the true Zion. We are standing on that mountain right here, right now, as we worship together as God's saints. And we can come with joy and anticipation, fully anticipating God's blessing and grace and empowerment. And most of all, His presence. But He is with us in a unique and special way as a means of grace when we gather together to praise His name. We can rejoice that God dwells with us. We can rejoice that he wants to fellowship with us. We are his people. And so that is the mountain. The mountain remains the most significant theme in Scripture. I mean, you think about many, many, many very significant events, especially in the Old Testament, occur on mountains. Just a selection. You know, we've talked about the garden, right? The Garden of Eden itself being an elevated place, almost, almost, almost mirroring the reality of, of the temple, right? You have the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place. You have the outer courts, right? The inner court, the outer court. Because we see in the Garden of Eden that very reality, the most holy place where God's pr- very presence is. And man is meant to cultivate the earth so that the entire world becomes a garden, effectively. So the Garden of Eden... Mount Sinai, that's a big one. That's one we all know, where God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses and Israel in Exodus 19 through 20. Very significant, thus establishing the law of the Old Covenant. One of our beloved Bible stories from the Old Testament, the episode on Mount Carmel where Elijah faces down the 400 prophets of, of Baal. And God displays his power most significant, right? If, if Baal is God, let him answer, right? And there is no answer. 
And then Elijah calls out to the Lord, and fire comes down and consumes the altar. A a fantastic display of God's presence and power, reminding Israel that there still is a God in Israel, and his name isn't Baal. Think about Genesis chapter 22, where the promise is reiterated and declared to Abraham, where Abraham is tested, right? He's instructed to sacrifice Isaac, right? Go to Mount Moriah, which many think to either be Golgotha or Zion, depending on who you consult. But that's where God provides the ram for the burnt offering. Again, looking forward to the ultimate lamb that he would provide as a burnt offering for our sins. Many very important events occur on mountains. Mount Nebo, God is with Moses, shows him the promised land just before his death, and on and on. Probably the most significant mountain in the Old Testament is Mount Zion. We read in Psalm 48, 1 through 2, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Why is Zion his holy mountain? Because that is where God dwells. That is where where the people of God were meant to, to flock to, to worship him, to offer sacrifices. That is where he dwelt, right? Just on that, that one mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the psalmist goes on to say. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So, of course, the significance of this, I think, is very clear, is that mountains were the meeting place of God. And we see this, this is not by coincidence, friends. This is is inserted all over the narrative of the Old Testament because God is trying to tell us something very clearly. I want to dwell with you. But, of course, our issue is our sin. We can't draw near to God on our own terms, try as we might. We can't bring our, our good deeds, our good intentions. We must come on God's terms. God wants to dwell with us. Listen to Exodus 25, 8. As soon as he gains a people, this is what he says. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, leading up to the construction of the tabernacle, right? So you see, coupled with this, this mountain motif is the theme of the temple, because the temple is the meeting place between God and man. There is always going to be a temple of some sort. Even now, as New Testament saints, we are the temple of God. There has always been a temple, and there always will be. But let, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. In Exodus 29, 45 through, 36, for 45 through 46, we read this. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. Okay, he is going to be with us. His presence is going to be a fixture with the, the, the assembly of God's people. And I will be their God, not some other God, but I, Yahweh, will be their God that they shall know that I am the Lord their God. You see, there's a particular purpose that is, that is uh, threaded within this desire of God to dwell with people is he wants to be known, right? That's what we keep saying. We can't keep making holiness this thing where God is always trying to maintain distance from us. His holiness means, among other things, that he is drawing near. He is, and that, yes, there is, there, is a, there is a scariness about that, right? Because if, God, if, if God's holy presence is here, then we better be prepared. We better be consecrated. We better be devoted to him. We better be ready. But he wants to be known. Right? But they may know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Right? That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Right? He's very clear on his intentions. He is clear on his intentions with Israel. He is clear with his intentions upon the church. Even when we get into the law, right? Leviticus 20, 11, well, 11 through 12 is the main verse, but listen starting from verse 6. This is the provision that God gives. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land but you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. This sounds good if you're an Israelite, right? The Lord's going to go before you and you're going to conquer your enemies. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. There are actually events in Israel's history where that, that happened. 
So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. You see what's going on? This happens as a result of God dwelling in the midst of his people. I'm going to dwell with you. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. I'm going to bless you so much you're not even going to believe it. You're going to get tired of being blessed. <laughs> Listen to this, verse 10. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, oh, there's more? He says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. And so some of us look at that and be like, man, wouldn't that be so cool if we were able to live in that era and God walks with us? Guess what? He does right now. His presence is with us. God dwells with us. It's like, we're wi- it's like we're wishing for things that God has already given us in abundance. And yet here we are. We experience it that way. And, this, and God not only dwells with, with, with Israel, right? He gives them promises knowing that they will fail, knowing that they will be exiled, knowing that they will fall into great sin and apostasy, and yet he still gives the promise. And this looks forward to the new covenant, right? So the blessing of the new covenant, guess what? God dwells with us. And I would say even more closely, more profoundly than he did with his people in the old, because his spirit dwells within us. Ezekiel 37, my servant David will be king over them. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. This is the law being written on the heart. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. Speaking of the new covenant, it will be an everlasting covenant with them. See, and so with this running parallel, or I would say manifest in this new covenant is this kingdom. The co- this new covenant will last forever, and this kingdom of Christ will last forever. It makes sense. How, how is this kingdom, how is this mountain that fills the earth, how does it relate to us? What is the relationship? The relationship is this everlasting covenant, this everlasting covenant within an everlasting kingdom. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. See, that's the significance of this mountain filling the whole earth, because it will be everywhere. So God's sanctuary will be everywhere, no longer confined to one place, one geographical place, right? Wherever God's saints are, wherever the kingdom of God is, there is the mountain of God. There is Mount Zion, right? So when we get out there in Manitou Springs or Colorado Springs, wherever we are, I'm just encouraging you guys, we got to do this, right? Just be faithful. When we get out there in Manitou Springs, we're not in Manitou Springs. We're on Mount Zion, baby. We're there. We're on holy ground. We are on claimed ground, right? Preaching the gospel, right? And we're telling people, come to the mountain, right? Come to the mountain. Kiss the sun. Bow the knee. Believe in him because he dwells in our midst. My dwelling place will also be with them, verse 27. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So this, I, this prophecy from Ezekiel is much more than meets the eye, right? It's being communicated to Israel, the nation of Israel, in a way that they can understand. But the promises, once they are fulfilled and made manifest, are much grander, much bigger than they first appear. What Ezekiel is preaching here is something that is to be a worldwide phenomenon. My, my dwelling place also will be with them. Who? With God's people. Who are we? We're God's people. Is God's sanctuary here? Yes, because it's with his people. So the, so the fulfillment of this promise ends up being much bigger than, we, than, than it first meets the eye, than it first is apparent. But such are the promises of God when they are fulfilled. And, the, and here's the proof for it. 
Verse 28, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So these promises are meant, they've always been meant to go outside of geographical Israel because the Lord is going to expand the borders of Israel. So anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be counted as a true Israelite. We talk about heirs according to the promise, being true sons of Abraham by faith and not by physical birth. So that's how this ties in together with this mountain motif. And so significant to this understanding, and I kind of want to, it may seem like a brief rabbit trail, but I want to demonstrate how this is so. Because in, in the, the, the mind of the Israelite, God dwelt with his people, yes. And in fact, they took that for granted. They abused that truth rather than, rather than sanctifying that truth, rather than treasuring that truth. Right? They figured they could just sin and sin and sin and sin, and God would never depart. Well, eventually, as we find out through Ezekiel, the, the, the very glory of God eventually departed from the temple, and then Israel was ransacked. But when, when you talk about the mountain of God to an Israelite, an Old Testament Israelite, their mind is immediately going to go to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, right? The city of the great king. That's where, where, where is God? If you ask an Israelite, where, where is God? They're going to tell you Mount Zion. That's where God dwells. Yeah, that's the temple. That's where God meets man. That's where the Holy of Holies is. That's where the Ark of the Testimony is. That's where the glory of God dwells. And so we understand initially that Mount Zion was simply, yes, it was limited to a geographical place, and its theme continues to build throughout the biblical narrative. This is why biblical theology is so important. We see the development of certain themes, and Mount Zion, is, as far as mountains go, is perhaps the most the most significant, because it is, it is, its significance is obvious. It points to where God is, where his presence is, where his holy presence dwells, and where he meets with man, where he meets with unworthy man. We read in 2 Samuel 5, 7, where David took the stronghold of Zion. Right? David eventually launched this military campaign, and he took Zion, Zion where the temple eventually will be, would have been built built by his son Solomon. So we have that idea of God's dwelling place with his people and that, that promise fulfilled, right? But eventually, eventually, what we understand as geographical Zion points to a much greater, a much more magnificent reality than just a physical temple. This, this motif, this picture of Zion was meant to point to God's intention for the entirety of creation, for the entirety of the world. That where in the beginning his presence would 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 his presence would be present in a particular geographical location would then expand to fill the earth. Right? It points us to a greater reality. And that is why, as you read further on in Scripture, Mount Zion becomes much, much more than simply a mountain in Jerusalem, a mountain where the temple is. Listen to this, because this points to the, the reality of the new covenant. Isaiah 2, 3, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that, may, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths, right? This is a vision in which Mount Zion is really, Mount Zion is calling to others. It's drawing in the nations, not just Israel, so it's not that we want to spiritualize it per se, but we want to see God's intentions for both Jew and Gentile using Mount Zion as a preeminent theme throughout Scripture, as a preeminent theme of God's meeting place with man. And so if you read in the, in the, in the prophet Micah, he says much the same thing as Isaiah, Micah 4.2, and many nations shall come. That's how we know it's not limited to just Israel. Israel's one nation. But he says, and many nations shall come. You mean the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles. And what will they say? Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. See, parents, this is a great verse to read your kids occasionally on the Lord's day before you hop in the car and come here. Come, let us go together. It's a way of like, consecrating yourselves. It's a way of preparing your own hearts. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, because now the mountain is wherever God's people gather. We don't have to 
hop on a plane and fly to Israel? Israel is here. The mountain of God is here. Zion is here. Let us go up together to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's what's happening today. The word of the Lord is going forth from Zion, from the heavenly Zion. And I would say from the real Zion, the greater Zion. I think sometimes we're tempted to think that heavenly things are somehow less real, less substantive than physical material things. But if the goal of the gospel is to make heaven and earth one, we have to view the heavenly things as all the more real. Psalm 125, 1 through 2, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Right? So Zion is, becomes much more than simply a mountain in Jerusalem. It becomes the place of worship the world over. Right? This is the mountain. This is why we, we continue to harp on this. Because what is the mountain that is filling the earth? It is the true Zion. It is the mountain of God. It is the mountain of our Lord Jesus Christ. We even read this in, we read this in Psalm chapter 2. We go to this verse often, but Psalm chapter 2, if you want to turn there with me. In verse 6, he says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And what's the context of this? The raging of the nations, the uproar of the peoples, the kings of the earth rebelling against the Lord and His anointed, against Jesus Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us, right? They're offended at the presence of the King. They are offended at the mountain of God. They are offended at His holy presence. They are offended at His temple. They are offended at His people. They're just offended. I mean, it, it speaks perfectly to our day and age, right? We just leave and live in the midst of an offended people, right? Can't seem to say anything to anyone these days, sometimes especially Christians. You just can't no one wants to hear it anymore. It's amazing. And yet when people resist, who are they resisting ultimately? They're not resisting you. They're, re they're resisting the king. They're resisting his word, his authority, his reign. And yet his reign remains unshakable. He has placed his anointed one. He has placed his king on the mountain, on the holy mountain. And so we come to Hebrews 12. Right. I think this kind of seals it for us. Hebrews 12. I love this. If you ever attend a membership class, we always bring this verse up. This just is so, this is such good stuff. Hebrews 12, 22 to 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of, their righteous made, of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Of course, Jesus is going to be there. He's the king. He's the king on the mountain. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What does Abel's blood speak? Vengeance. Avenge me. What does the blood of Christ speak to us? It brings peace. It reconciles us to the living God. But who is he telling this to, right? He's bringing Zion, right? Who's he telling? He is telling persecuted Jews who are being rejected by Israel for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pay attention to this passage. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. Why is that significant? Because if you are a Jew living in Jerusalem at that time, Mount Zion is the one place you're not welcome at anymore. You can't go to Zion. You'll probably have rocks thrown at you. You'll have your property taken away. What do you mean Mount Zion? Mount Zion's there and we are not welcome. Right? So he's, he must be presenting something greater. Not something altogether different, but something greater. He is presenting a, a greater Zion. You are here when you gather together. You have come to the true and heavenly Mount Zion to the city of the living God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that, that certainly turns that narrative on its head, right? Where if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem and you did not follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a way in which you are going to mock Christians. That Zion, you're not welcome. That's where God's presence dwells. 
and you have been alienated from the presence of God. That would be crushing to a Jew who wanted to be faithful. Right? But in this letter, the, the Jewish Christian, and any Christian by that matter, is given immense hope and comfort because it's if the letter, the letter is saying, guys, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's common to think that that's the real Zion over there, but, but, but no, not at all. In fact, that Zion's going to be destroyed. That's the old Zion, and you are coming to the real Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, but, but heavenly Jerusalem will stand to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So when we come to worship together, we are worshiping under the presence of Christ, the presence of God himself. We are worshiping with angels. That's why it's so weird, it's so strange and so sad that so many of us come to, come to the Sunday assembly so downcast and so, so miserable, dare I say. But then we're offered here from Hebrews 12, a true view of what is happening when we gather together. This assembly, this church, this ecclesia that is called out, literally called out of the old mountain, called out of the old creation, which is doomed to destruction, to worship God at the new Zion, the new Jerusalem. See, this is not entirely future. We enjoy this reality now because we are the righteous made perfect. And we have Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, as our great high priest. So, of course, we would say, yeah, like, how does, how does this happen? How do, we, how do we gain access to this Zion, right? Made perfectly clear, we gain access through faith in Christ. And so you see, Zion is much greater than simply some location on a mountain in Jerusalem. The Christian need not fear. I mean, if you go to, if you go to Jerusalem, if you ever visit Jerusalem, one thing you have to go see is the Temple Mount, the Wailing Wall. And you see, and you see the Jews just mourning, right? They're, they're, they're praying for God to, to, to bring them justice. They're, 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 they're praying for a litany of things, but they are mourning the absence of the Temple. They are mourning Zion. And the Christian doesn't have to mourn like that as a person who has no hope because we are able to, on a regular basis, come to the true Zion, to the true Jerusalem. We do not mourn and wail as those who have no hope. Because we know where the true Zion is. It's right here. We know where the Lord's presence is. It's right here. So we have no need to mourn in that regard. And so, continuing on with this mountain theme is, 1 Peter 2 says, we come to Him, right? A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we are to be as those living stones, to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, right? So Mount Zion is this very mountain that grows and, and, and fills the entire earth. It's really the, 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 the Mount Zion we are provided with in the Old Testament is just a foreshadowing of the greater Zion. Even in Hebrews 9.24, we read, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear to God, in the presence of God for us. See, that's how we had hope, right? We knew, we knew, we knew hope arrived in the incarnation. We talked a lot about that during Christmas time. That is... God's presence coming to dwell with us in human form. Isaiah 7.14, the virgin shall conceive, shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right? It's, it's, as, as, as God continues to reveal himself, the most profound way he could reveal himself was in man, in human flesh. And so he sent Jesus to die for us in our place. And that's very significant, and here's why. There's a question that, Psalm, that, that is presented in, I believe it's Psalm 24, to kind of tie this together. Hopefully I'm right. I think it's, I think it's Psalm 24, if you want to turn there. In Psalm 24, we read this, verse 3, 
Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and who has not sworn deceitfully. Do any of us in here have clean hands and a pure heart? Can we ascend the hill of the Lord on our own? Certainly not. We are cut off from the hill of the Lord. Here is, here is the mountain of the Lord, the true Zion growing. It's coming our way. What are we going to do? How can we ascend this hill? How can, we, how can we be reintroduced into the presence of the living and true God? Only if we have clean hands and a pure heart. Well, we certainly didn't. And that is why God sent Jesus Christ, the only one who could ever claim to have had clean hands and a pure heart and who has never lifted up his soul to falsehood and has never sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord. And he did. He received the blessing from the Lord. And the only way we receive that is through faith in him. Resting everything we have in him and his righteousness alone. And may it be said of us in verse 6, this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Right? We can only ascend Zion. We can only ascend the hill of the Lord and come face to face with the Lord through Christ. And that is why 1 Peter 3 says, Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he could bring us to God, that he might bring us to God. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, we can't do it on our own. We have to be brought near. We have to be brought up the hill. We have to be brought up Zion. And so here we introduce, this is where the gospel comes to bear. And we think about this. Like, think about when Christ was crucified. Another mountain comes into play. You have Zion, right? You have Mount Zion. Here you have Jesus Christ, the glory of God in human flesh. Put outside the city crucified on a hill, on a mountain called Golgotha, the place of a skull. Right? We think of the Mount Zion as, as a place where, where God meets man, but here on Golgotha, God met man, the true man, the new Adam, in judgment and judge sin in Christ for all who would believe. And so because of that mountain, we can ascend the true Zion. Listen to what Jesus says to the woman at the well, right? Says our, she says, our fathers worship in this mountain and you people save it in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his true worshipers. Like he's saying, you know what? You're both wrong. You say something, the Jews say something. You're, you, you've got this all wrong. Pretty soon, there's coming a new time and a new covenant where you will neither worship here nor in Jerusalem. You will worship in spirit and in truth. See, we can't go to the mountain, but the mountain has come to us. And today we worship on that mountain. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See? That's how big the mountain's going to be. That's, that's the reality. of it. You're going to look everywhere. At some point, we're going to look and all we're going to see is mountain, right? When you're out to see, hey, whether you're, whether you're a flat earther or a round earther, you go out to the sea and all you see is sea. All you see is water. That is, that is, what, is, that is what the gospel is going to do. The whole earth has already been claimed, but as the gospel continues to grow and impact this world, all we're going to see is the mountain. The whole earth will be a mountain. The whole earth will be a garden. The whole earth will be a temple. All the world will be a meeting place with God. All the world will be a place for His holy habitation. And so if you're here today and you don't believe that, you are in danger because unholy cannot, cannot stand before the holy. We must be made holy. We must be redeemed by the blood of our precious Savior. And that is why we preach. We preach the gospel today so that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before the true and living God. Right? A couple of, couple of uh, applications here I want us to remember. If-then statements to take on our way today. 
God dwells among us. Here's the first thing. God dwells among us, so repent. This mountain is growing, and as it covers the earth, it is going to subdue it, and all of God's enemies are going to be destroyed. God will vindicate his own name in the name of his people. So God dwells among us. So if you have not, the gospel calls us to repent and believe. Turn from your sins. Cast yourself on a gracious Savior and believe in him. Repent, lest you perish in the way. That's the first thing. God dwells among us. And this is for you Christians mostly. Remember, call to mind the things of God. Call to mind our King and the grace that He has given us. So often we forget. Again, some of you are here today and you have spiritual Alzheimer's. You cannot remember the blessing you had this morning. This is a rebuke for me too. Been wallowing for a while. But we cannot, we just, that we, we concentrate so much on all the things that are going wrong in life, we can barely see the blessings that God gave us by giving us breath this morning. Some of you have been, really been struggling to the point where you're barely even struggling anymore. You may have claimed Christ for a time, but you are wallowing in your sins. You are not remembering the good things that God has given you. And some of you think, you know, are you talking to me? Yeah, I probably am. Remember the goodness of God. Remember when, remember when you lived under the instruction of the Word. Was your life miserable when you were walking with God? Was it so confining? Was it so oppressive? And then you walked away from Him? What happened? Right? Is life so much better not walking with God? How long are you going to throw stones at a mountain <laughs> before you remember that this mountain is irresistible, but this mountain will not be moved and will not be destroyed. This is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're rebelling against the king, you're going to be destroyed. So repent and remember. Remember the tender mercies of God. Remember that if you come to him, he will in no wise cast you out. Right? Remember his grace. Remember his grace. And on that note, God dwells among us. So refresh yourself, right? Repent, remember, and refresh yourself. Remember that God, God dwells among you, and God could kill you, but he doesn't, right? Instead, he gives you all of his life and grace and goodness. Refresh yourself with that. Refresh yourself with that daily. If you really believe that God dwells with you and he walks among you to bless you, right, and to enjoy a common life with you, refresh yourself with that regularly, if, 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 you truly, if you truly desire God's presence, if you truly delight in it, refresh yourself with that truth as a matter of course, as a matter of, of habit. Because if you don't, you're not going to remember what He has given you. Hence the call to repent. Remember. 2 Corinthians 6.16 For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Sometimes we forget that. We are the temple. Refresh yourself at the temple. Don't defile the temple. And as we proclaim the word of the Lord, we look forward to this in its finality. I'll close with this verse. Revelation 21.4 And I heard a loud voice from the throne, right? From the mountain, from the throne on the mountain, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. The fullness of the gospel promise realized, experienced, as the mountain itself points to a renewal, a restoration unto a new creation. Right? Guys, plead with you one last time. Like If you're here today, this, this, the mountain is growing to fill the whole earth. God's presence will be everywhere where his people is. Whereas people are, do not rebel, do not resist while there is time, as long as today is called today. Repent and believe the gospel and stand on the mountain of God and God will stand with you. Let's pray. Lord, and we thank you again today. We thank you for this mountain that we can stand on. And um, even as we can think about next Lord's Day where we can talk about the security and the comfort that we have, your grace and provision, that, that the mountain is home, 
and a permanent fixture for your people. But Lord, simply today we want to recognize, and there's so much more we can say about this, but I, I want us, Lord, to recall that from the beginning of creation, your intention was always to dwell with us, to dwell with your image bearers. Lord, not to, not to dwell with us in wrath, but to dwell with us in grace and love and goodness, giving us every provision that we would no longer rebel against you, but, but to walk in your paths, to, to love your law, to be a, a worshiping, joyful people who exalt your name. That is, that is the call, Lord, as we gather together on the mountain. We're not just standing still doing nothing. We are, we are learning from you. We are learning your truth so we may walk in your ways and be your holy people devoted to every good work. Who, who come to You, Lord, purified, purified by the blood of the Lamb, knowing that Your promises are sure, knowing that we are sinners who are now saints, who have been forgiven of every transgression because Christ went to another mountain to die on a cross so that we could go up to Zion with Him at the front as our great High Priest and as our great King so please, Father, impress that upon us today that we may be a rejoicing people, faithful, faithful and true uh, to the one who is faithful and true to us. Thank you for all these things, Lord. Amen.